Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest this week is Charles Wiley. He serves as the coordinator of the Office of Theology and Worship for the Presbyterian Church USA. He's especially interested in how the church confesses its faith in Jesus Christ, is formed as a faithful community in post-Christian North American culture, and how Christians faithfully engage in interfaith issues. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you for being my guest and helping preachers all over the country, maybe, maybe. navigating their sermons. Uh, actually, last week we got one listener from Italy. So, well, I don't, I don't know um, if that person was helped, but I hope they were by some reflections that Mandy Smith and I shared. We got some fascinating text coming up for this. Sunday in the lectionary. This would be the eighth Sunday after Pentecost, correct? I believe it is. So our first Old Testament reading is Genesis 29, 15 through 28. So we got, after Jacob meets God in a vision, he travels on to Haran. He's looking for a wife from his own clan. He's met Rachel at the well. Uh, he decides that uh, he wants to marry her and he's got a work for a long season to uh, get her hand. And then on the night of the wedding, he wants to get it done, consummate the thing, have the, and he wakes up in the morning and it's Leah, the older sister. Now I'm sure this happens all the time in Louisville, Kentucky. More often than you might think. <laughs> so how do you preach this thing? Or do you, if you, if somebody's got all three readings, do you kind of, what do you think? You, 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 you just sort of, uh, you had tip and a nod, move on, or do you really dig your teeth into this baby? I think this is a really complicated one. Uh, and one that having women as uh, biblical scholars and preachers really helps. Uh, because the women here aren't agents at all. They're just sort of pawns in the Laban Jacob back and forth and makes me really wonder what you do with it. You know, what's interesting, I, I've actually preached this for wedding sermons. And well, of course, anybody that's been married for any amount of time knows, right? Like this is the a moment in every uh, mar at marriage, right? Because, you know, you put your best fo foot forward in dating. And then you get engaged and you maybe let your hair down a little bit, but you really don't show most of your shadow self until you're really married. One morning you're like, wait, this isn't who I married. <laughs> right. But, what, but what's interesting is what Jacob does, even though he wants Rachel, he makes space for Leah. And it's through Leah's womb that come most of Israel's prophets, priests, and kings and Judah. And through that line, Jesus. So maybe on some level, I guess the, the, the wedding sermon hook is that the the degree to you that you make space for the Leia, the shadow side, the one with the weak eyes, the one that that was 
the suppressed person that couldn't come out in the light to the to the degree that you make space for that person when it happens is where jesus is born in the womb of the nuptials maybe yeah i i guess you can do that it the the text just on its own without that kind of long-term view is is pretty hard to know for at least for me to know what to do with i'm also just sort of kind of blown away by the seven years and the seven years uh jacob was clearly a more patient person than i am well, yeah. I mean, patience is a virtue, right? I mean, we need some space for some Ben Franklin, uh, you know, despiritualized Puritan wisdom. I, you know, I coming into this conversation, I didn't see the Ben Franklin connection, um, but there you have it. It's um, Ben Franklin said that George Whitfield could make you weep just by saying Mesopotamia. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a Franklin quotation I didn't know. Um, I'm full of them, Charles. Full of I, them. I, I do live in Philadelphia. Well, there you go. Um, you know, it's interesting, this question about Leah's description, because there's one way to, to, to uh, for this, uh, the Hebrew in this to say, like, you know, she had delicate eyes or pretty eyes. This also might mean that she couldn't see well or even that she wasn't attractive. And I think that's another side of it that's a little hard to know what to do with. All I'm telling you is what's hard to do with. You're providing all the constructive uh, approaches here. One way to think about it, I mean, it is interesting in this kind of ordinary time, although I don't know why they call it ordinary time, because what church do you know that is ordinary? But, uh, you know, in ordinary time, you know, sometimes these texts line up better than others, and sometimes you've got to be creatively imaginative. But I was thinking, you were talking about Jacob's patience and sort of making sense of this in the long-range view, which in light of Romans 8 is interesting, right? Because here... Paul is writing in Romans 8, 26 through 39, about a new way of being that we, it comes about in baptism, and we're freed from the compounding sin, which leads to the finality of death, and we begin living in a new way with the Spirit, um, thanks to God's, you know, gift of love. And, it, but that's, it's not all hunky-dory there, right? And, and, we, and, and we live in the time between the times, and this text talks about uh, how the Spirit helps us in our weakness, and we don't know what to pray for when we're groaning, and the Spirit's searching our hearts, and you know we know that God works together uh, for those, you know, it works good for those who are called according to His purpose. And there's this beautiful, uh, you know, riff about who those who foreknew and predestined, and how we're we're going to inherit a glorious, flourishing finish. But it's almost like that's like Paul telling people, "Okay, come on." Say it with me, kids. Those he predestined, he called. Remember, don't quit on me here. You know, well, like, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you talked about that part being beautiful because I think that for a lot of folks, the beginning and the ending of this passage is very encouraging. You know that the spirit groans uh, in our weakness. You know that the the spirit pleads our case and all that stuff. And then you have this stuff at the end that's often used at funerals and other places. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Or used in the declaration of forgiveness. Uh, we will. We have a sweeping victory in the in the Common English Bible. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Neither death nor life. Uh, 
but there's a way in which the both the spirit groaning and the nothing can separate us is anchored by what you talked about, sort of Paul going, yeah, don't remember, this comes from God's predestining power, God's uh, uh God's claiming us uh, to God's own self in a profound and enduring way. Otherwise, it's not really going to, um, uh, these promises depend on that. Yeah. And I think that this, hey, for our Presbyterian listeners, man, this is where you lead with, with your best foot. Pre, it's predestination, man. You know, uh, you know, this is the good news of, I, I remember sitting, reading Church Dogmatics 2-2 for the first time, and I was at the... Waterworks Mall in Fox Chapel, Pittsburgh, you know, Pennsylvania, right outside of, right across, you know, right outside right. of Pittsburgh state limits. And I remember reading the intro and Bart saying, "Election is the sum of the gospel." And and I thought, "Wow, I never heard that before." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's like, hey, it's the cost of entry, which we, it's like the uh, terms and agreements. You, uh, you do agree yeah. to the terms and conditions, you know. It's like uh, Rick, uh, who is it? Uh, not Ricky Gervais. Uh, I forget the other British comedian. He talks about uh, Apple's the neediest person. Do you agree? They've agreed 38 times. Ask them again. Do they agree <laughs> to terms and conditions? <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, it's, they, I, usually election predestination, this is uh, this is the Presbyterian terms. You know, you, you click off and you come here. Okay, you're agreeing to terms and conditions. Westminster face, hide over a second of like, don't worry about it. Here's your new computer. <laughs> well, what I find, you know, I often say that... Uh, when you're talking about for Presbyterians, what is their most distinct, uh, the, their most distinct doctrinal statement is the one or identity is the one thing that they're most sure they don't believe. But in this passage, it's interesting how it, it's totally in terms of hope or security or um, this is how you can know that no matter what's going on, whether you're being uh, treated like a sheep for slaughter or not, that nothing can so, uh, separate you from God's love in Christ. And, you know, the best of the Reformed tradition is that that is anchored in who God is and not who we are because uh, we stumble and fall. Yeah, and there's this great line in Church Dogmatics 2-2, right? Which I'll just, of course, quote from memory, actually. Yes, well, I'm using that. I'm using some electronic resources, but I look like... Let me show you some electronic resources that will dazzle the mind. Yes. Um, you know, we think about what predestination means for us, but also Bart reminds us what it means for God. And he said, it is the lost son of man who is partner of electing God in the covenant. We are not so far speaking of what this means for man, what is quite certain is that for God, it means severe self-commitment. God does not merely give right. himself up to the risk and menace, but exposes himself to the actual onslaught and grasp of evil. For if God himself became man, this, this man, what else can this mean? But that he declared himself guilty of the contradiction against himself in which man was involved. And he later goes on to talk about like our, the, the electing partner is um, on a good day the wayward Simon Peter and on a bad day, Judas. <laughs> so one of the things I talk about all the time is the French baptismal uh, liturgy. Uh, in which Charles, really, who doesn't talk about that all yeah, the time? Yeah, so so I'll uh, I, I actually can quote this. I don't have to look it up on an electronic resource. In which when you when you baptize, he's, got, uh, he's he's an old school G. Yeah, so. Uh, when you baptize the child or an adult, actually, but often with children, you say, little one for you, Jesus Christ came into the world for you. 
Uh, he lived for you and showed God's love for you. He suffered and died for you. He was raised again, and for you, he, you, he will come again. But you know nothing of this yet. And so the scriptures fulfilled, we love because God loved us first. And when people who are completely nervous about predestination hear these words, they melt. This notion that God... God risks. God loves us. God, and um, and and you can see that played out so vividly in the baptism of a child, and um, uh, there are clearly all kinds of issues around um, uh, predestination, philosophically and and theologically in many ways. But at its core, it is a comforting doctrine of the notion of, as you pointed out from Bart, the uh, God's risky choice of us and our, uh, our being uh, secure in that love uh, that knows no bounds. Yeah, and it's, it's not the incarnation and God suffering for us is not plan B, it was plan A. Right. So, you, you know, it wasn't like, God, oh, man, look at these lots of scripts. What am I going to do now? I guess it's something about not just... In spite of our great need and sin, but all, but in some ways, because of it, God is for us. Um, I also really, verse 34, which I have, uh, the Common English Bible I like, it's not always, uh, it's uh, down-to-earthness sometimes uh, makes it sound less elevated, uh, but I guess that's kind of logical. But anyway, who is going to convict them? It is Christ Jesus who died, even more who was raised, who is also at Christ's right hand. It is Christ Jesus who pleads our case for us. And that's often used in uh, declarations of forgiveness. Who is going to convict us? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ was raised for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ intercedes for us. That's a, Those are powerful words. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Jonathan Edwards in, in, in The Religious Affections, right, says that all sin is basically some form of unbelief. So you think of like when the Israelites are like going up and spying on Canaan and they're like, they're giants in the land. But so often I feel like most of our self-defeating codependent behaviors or things that we hate about ourselves or when we're our shadow selves, like, you know, when we, when we, don't say something we really feel like we should say, or we said something we shouldn't. So often, whatever it is in that moment, right? What again? What's against us seems greater than Christ, right? So, right. If it's our coworkers' acceptance, or our need to look like we've got it all together, or our need to say, "Well, I got more members at my church," and whatever, whatever it is, it's somehow what you're giving into in that moment. It's sort of it, it's is a denial of, well, you know, Christ is for me. That's pretty good, but I'd also like the ego strokes and things. And I think the real freedom is that we can we can live with you know a more humble and open hand if we really believe this. There's an invitation right. to to a kind of comfort that would take that would probably relieve a lot of anxiety if we if we preach that to ourselves more regularly. I think that freedom is, um, in a sense, a. Uh, the theme of of grace and its relation to freedom is one of the more countercultural messages we can proclaim these days. I feel like the church is often portrayed the Christian Christianity, the church is often portrayed as sort of a symbol of guilt and obligation. Uh, of you know, like if you watch a movie or a TV show and they uh, there's a minister in, they're either inert, barely worth talking about, or they're there to make everybody feel bad. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
this notion that the gospel gives us true freedom uh, is, uh, I think, extraordinary. It's obviously not new, but I think it's um, uh, particularly important for our time and place. Yeah, it's like Brene Brown says, the, the, the reality of shame is everyone has it, and the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. And so... Huh. So Christ, it, it, you know, he, he, he invites us into unbinding that, which is, is the source of freedom, you know, in, in his... Yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing. It had to be you. It had to be you. I wandered around. Which takes us, speaking of Jesus, <laughs> really, we go right to the words of Jesus. So, yeah, this is an interesting set of parables. I'm always, one of the things I... Yeah, Matthew 13, 31 through 33 and 44 through 52. So I'm always intrigued uh, whenever you have a lectionary text that skips stuff. I'm always intrigued about what it skips, right? And it's interesting in this one that it kind of skips the harder to talk about parables and gives us the ones that perhaps are a little easier to talk about. Yeah, it's uh, they're, they're editorial decisions in the lectionary very often, right? Well, like the parable of the yeast. Oh, sorry, I, I talk about one that skipped. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour until the yeast had worked its way through all the dough. There's not a lot to go on there. I mean, you can do something with it, but it's just interesting that maybe that's why they skipped it. They didn't think that it was worth trying to figure out for preaching. And and then the next, the parable of the weeds, I think this one is one that skipped, and that's got a lot of judgment in it. And then we get to these kind of great worth uh, parables. Well, actually, actually, last week in the lectionary is the is the weeds one. Oh, what's it last week? Yeah, I actually preached on that. I was at a basketball tournament. Well, I mean, you know, th- these things. Uh, you're not a Sabbatarian, and that's that's completely understandable. Apparently, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great tradition in Presbyterianism. Um, the uh, I, I now that you say that, I actually knew that. I just forgotten. So. Uh, so what we're doing here is we're keeping the intro to the parables and then going to the rest of them. Wow. Yeah. I am a real expert on these things. It's a good thing you invited me to talk about them. It's like you, uh, it's like, uh, you've, uh, you've been to seminary or something. Yeah, it's something like that. So you have, with 44, you have this treasure merchant, and then you get the fish one, which is kind of fun to talk about. Um, and you get the mustard seed. Yes, you get the mustard seed at the beginning. Uh, the mustard seed is interesting. You do get the leaven in this one. Wait, you do get the leaven here. Oh. And 33. Oh, what am I saying? I still, I really don't know what I'm talking about. So the leaven one I think is interesting because it's sort of like the hidden work of the kingdom, uh, it seems to me. But it's just interesting that unlike many of them, it just, it's so concise and then just goes on to something else. It, it doesn't really play it out very much. Um, and maybe it's because they knew more what that meant than I do, even though I've used yeast and bread. Um, Have you read uh, Robert Capon's book, uh, The Parables? No, I just heard about it. It's amazing. And he, you know, the guy baked his own bread like every day. And he's like, he says in this commenting on this, he says like, and I've no less appreciation for the process. <laughs> um, so he loves this parable. Um, but he says this, it's really interesting. He says, the hiding of yeast in a batch of dough 
is both more mysterious and more pervasive than any of the hidings Jesus has so far used to illustrate the kingdom. Seeds may disappear into the ground, but if you're willing to take the trouble to hunt and peck for them, you can conceivably get every last one of them back up and out of the field. Furthermore, even when they are thickly broadcast, there is still more of the field unsown than sown, but yeasts, no way on either count. Just as yeast enters into the dough by being dissolved in that, in the very liquid that makes the dough become dough at all, just as there is not a moment of the dough's existence from start to finish in which it is unleavened dough, so this parable insists that the kingdom enters the world at its creation, and that there is not and never has been any unkingdom humanity anywhere in the world. For by, with, and in the very fluids that make and restore creation, by the waters on whose face the Spirit moved, by the mist that watered Eden, by the Pascal blood on the doorpost, by the blood of the covenant on Sinai, by the waters of the Jordan, Jesus' baptism, by the blood and water from the side of the cross, from the side of the cross, and by the river of life in the New Jerusalem, the Word who is the yeast that leaves not one scrap of this lump of a world unleavened has always been hidden in his creation. He did not start being hidden in 4 BC. All he did in his time on earth was show us his face and tell us his name and send us out to share that good news with everybody. That's why he writes books about the parables and I don't. <laughs> right. Well, he knows where they are in the <laughs> Yeah. Well, but I was taking this in a much more uh, literal way. I mean, like who hides yeast in a bushel of flour? I mean, people put yeast in to make bread, but the whole notion of hiding yeast is just kind of weird. Yeah, it, it is it interesting. It, it is interesting that Jesus there is, is I guess, I mean, he, he, it's a parable after all, right? And he, he's right. making it. And I was thinking, but I think what's interesting is is that sort of Capon's take where, or the mustard seed, which kind of grows up into this great thing eventually. Uh, and it's funny because Capon notes what you what you see what 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 these parables lack that the weeds and some other ones lack is opposition. Like there's not this eschatological opposition right. language as much, and you know it's interesting because I, I I think that the the parable the parables and Jacob's story bookend nicely because there's this sense in which the operative power of the word is just as real in this weird patriarchal story, which through which you know without the without which we would never have this parable because without Leah and her womb we would right. never ha- we would never have. Mary's womb, and we'd never have the Redeemer of the world. And so we're always, you know, our lives are, are, are we're just, you know, it's funny, Invisibilia, this great podcast, was talking about how um, they, they were talking about judgments and umpire school, and they interviewed guys in umpire school. And these guys, like, they say, how often do you get it right? 98.5, 99% of the time I get the calls right. And they were talking about how we can cognitively deal with the fact that we get things wrong, but we can't deal with it emotionally. And I right. think the good news of all these passages, whether or not we get it right or wrong, that God's capacity to out God's capacity to redeem always outpaces our ability to sin or to miss the point or right. to give in to our own quiet desperation. Well, what I really appreciate about the yeast parable, now that I said the snarky stuff, is that I think it goes against my own uh, instincts, which is to always, which is to look for the tangible, to the empirical, to to want to measure and figure out how God is working or what the kingdom is doing or what I'm doing. And um, I like the image. I mean, I, I appreciate the image of this kind of invisible uh, thing that goes in the wheat flour that can't be uh, taken back out, that can't be identified, and yet works to 
transform and change once some. Well, it's also not mentioned that you know the liquid being added at some point, but at but what goes through this dough is something that uh, no one at the time understood scientifically, and I don't particularly understand scientifically all that well today. But that um, is something you just can't sort of point to here and here and here. It, it's a it, it's the whole process that shows you what is happening. Yeah, and Capine says these parables of the kingdom are. They point to the kingdom's Catholicity, its actuality, and its mysteriousness. And I think that that's the nature of the kingdom, right? Yep. I agree with that. Charles, thanks for taking some time with me. And We didn't even get to talk about the good fish get eaten and the bad fish get thrown back in. We'll do that next year, eh? Okay. (laughs) Thanks, man. Hey, see you, man. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to my guest, Charles Wiley, from the Presbyterian Church USA Office of Theology and Worship, and thank you again for listening, and we will catch you next week. Until then, fare thee well.